It wasn't that long ago we had a movement to make the public option the law of the land. Americans for Prosperity wants you to consider another idea, the personal option. I'm Dwayne Lester and this is Insight to Action. In this episode, Dean Clancy, the healthcare senior policy fellow with Americans for Prosperity, lays out the personal option, explaining how it gives you the choice and control you want, the affordability you need, the quality you deserve from the medical professionals you trust. Here we go. It wasn't that long ago I heard the phrase personal option and it was probably long after this this article that I'm looking at now had come out and somebody said to me we need to talk to someone about the personal option and of course everyone said go to Dean Clancy he knows so here we are and uh, I'm looking at the the uh, article published back in September and it talks about the five reforms that we'd like to see in in healthcare and our vision so let's start first with vision that's where I love to start what is the vision for healthcare in America Dwayne, our vision is that everybody has access to the high-quality health care they need when they need it at a price they can afford. That's the vision. Very simple. That's, uh, that's an important vision because it isn't, it isn't that they just have, you know, I, I, I hear we want everyone to have health care coverage, but coverage does not equal access, does it? No, exactly. And uh, having an insurance card doesn't ensure that you actually get the care you need. In in the uh, article that's up, but uh, we'll have it linked in the show notes. Um, we want to see a doctor, the doctor of our choice, conveniently and affordably. Is that not what, what's going on now? No, unfortunately. And, and to put things in context, we have a pretty good health care system, in some ways the best in the world, uh, but it has serious flaws. And Americans are not looking for a major overhaul of the system. Most people are actually pretty content with the current arrangements, but they are very concerned about some problems. For example, the high cost of health care. It's high and it's constantly growing. They're also concerned about the uncertainty and lack of transparency. You often just don't know what your health care costs, and you can't find out before you actually pay for it. Those are serious problems, but they are fixable, and Americans are not looking for a government takeover to fix those problems. They're looking for way, you know, common sense reforms to fix what's broken and preserve what works. We've talked before about the uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma City. I think that's what it is. It could just be the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, but I think it's Oklahoma City. That's not right. important. What is important is that they, they list what their surgeries will cost. They have it right online. You know exactly what it's going to cost going in. You're not shocked by a bill later. Why don't we have that in every hospital or in every doctor's office? What's keeping that from happening? Well, we have a system that emphasizes... Um, third-party payment. That means, you know, insurers and employers basically taking care of you rather than you kind of having the control and the choice over your own decisions. And the result is 
people lose touch with how much things cost. The Oklahoma Surgery Center, what they've done, and it's brilliant, is they've said, look, uh, you know, let's not worry about insurance. If you have cash, if you have a way to pay, and yes, if you have insurance, that's fine, but we're going to go ahead and post our prices up front, just like when you go to the grocery store. And um, you can shop around. Of course, their competitors don't post their prices. So that's tough on them, although the existence of the Oklahoma Surgery Center has forced some of them to try to compete. And that's great. That's an innovation. And patients love it. In fact, uh, people will fly from all over the country, sometimes even from other countries, uh, to go there because it's high-quality medicine. But um, most hospitals don't do it because the current rules and, and subsidies are set up basically to encourage people to rely on insurance and to let somebody else worry about the price. Uh, the second point is we want access to the most appropriate treatments. And I, again, I ask, is this not what's happening now? If I go to the doctor, am I not? do I not have access to the most appropriate treatments? What barrier is keeping me from getting that? Well, the, the, the major barrier is the rules and uh, restrictions that insurance companies and government health care programs impose to try to control costs. So there may be, for example, a drug that would cure your uh, illness or, or be the best thing for you, and your doctor knows it, but he or she really can't um, ensure that you get it because the person who's really paying it, the insurance company or the or Medicare or Medicaid or what have you, they won't cover it. And um, then there's also a secondary problem, which is that sometimes a, a, an effective therapy has been approved overseas, Europe or Japan or something, maybe it's been there available to their people for years, but it's still not available in this country because our Federal Food and Drug Administration, the folks who approve uh, drugs and medical devices, they just haven't gotten around to it yet because of the bureaucracy uh, at the FDA. And so Americans are suffering and dying waiting for drugs to be approved in this country that we already know are safe and effective overseas. Those are the kind of barriers that are keeping people from getting uh, the most uh, appropriate uh, therapies. The point uh, after that one is access to good insurance that meets our needs at an affordable rate. I thought we had an exchange for that. <laughs> well, the idea of an exchange or marketplace is great. The problem is the government has imposed so many mandates and regulations on insurance plans. They've bulked them up with the burdens that the consumers don't necessarily want, benefits that people aren't necessarily interested in buying, and um, various uh, forms and regulations that it's just too expensive and it doesn't meet consumers' needs. And so people end up uh, going into those government healthcare exchanges really as a last resort. Uh, it tends to be used primarily by people who have expensive medical conditions and they have no other affordable health insurance option. It doesn't have to be that way. Health insurance can be affordable. Markets can work in healthcare just like anywhere else, but you have to let them. You have to let insurance markets work so that you price risk uh, appropriately. People can buy what they need and don't have to buy what they don't expect to use. And uh, you have a market and everything works out well. We had 
a relatively functioning insurance market before the Affordable Care Act was imposed. There were about a a dozen states that had already imposed something like uh, the Affordable Care Act, and they had very high insurance costs and problems with people waiting until they were sick to sign up for coverage. Now we've made that a national policy, and as a result, uh, instead of saving money on health insurance, uh, as was promised, it's actually a lot more expensive. I remember hearing something, and maybe you can uh, expand on this. I remember hearing something about single men being forced to buy health care insurance that covers, um, like, prenatal care. Is it? Yeah. Yes, that's right. It's one-size-fits-all benefits. It's for everybody, whether they need it or not. It's, uh, you know, this is the idea of, the fear is of the people who impose these mandates that, People won't uh, have the coverage they need when they need it, so let's make everybody pay for it uh, up front whether they want it or not. And the result is that it just costs a lot more for everybody, and it's especially hard on uh, younger and healthier people who can't really afford that at all. That's why there was a mandate to make you buy insurance. Happily, the the, uh, country rebelled at that, and Congress repealed it, and it turned out um, nothing seriously changed with the repeal of that mandate. Um, the fact is, these mandated benefits just drive up the costs. There is an aspect in there uh, of this this belief that some Americans are too stupid to be free, so we have to make them do these things. Uh, you know, they don't know what they need, so we have to force these things into place. How much how much of it is that, and how much of it is crony, just straight up cronyism? With with people seeing this legislation being made and getting their lobbyists in the door and saying, no, you need to include this also. So they they have to have this health care. I've seen that on the state level. I assume that we see similar things on the federal level. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. What what really happened with uh, the the big health care bill in 2010 is is something you see at the state level and had been going on for a long time. And that is that special interests basically form a coalition and they say, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. And so when the health insurers basically said, look, we'll agree to become, in effect, a regulated utility, we'll do it in exchange for everyone having to buy our product. That was that mandate that I just uh, spoke about a moment ago. And um, that then uh, caused a kind of dynamic where all the other interests started saying, well, we want a seat at the table too. The, you know, pharmaceutical manufacturers, the hospitals, the doctors, everybody was getting on board and, and basically trying to make sure that they didn't uh, get, you know, uh, cut in the deal and that in fact they could maintain or even increase their, their current revenues. And pretty soon you had a majority, uh, a controversial one, but a, a majority to force this through, but it was the special interests who were writing the bill, uh, not the people. And, um, and and so that does in fact go on and that's what's happened. And we need to move away from that and we need to do it in a way that doesn't cause people to lose access to healthcare, just the, just the, the reverse. We want people to have the access and have the choice of a doctor and an insurance plan, but it should be up to them. They should be able to make that choice. The fifth, fourth point in this in this vision says well, we've already talked about to know how much care will cost up front before we pay for it. The fifth point, however, is safety nets that protect the vulnerable. And when I look at that, 
this thought comes to mind that that I've seen across the country, this idea that if government doesn't do it, it won't be done. These safety nets, some will be governmental, but they don't all have to be, do they? No, that that's exactly right. Just because uh, the government isn't doing a thing doesn't mean it's not happening. There is uh, charity, there's welfare, there's families, there's churches, there's you know all kinds of institutions in society. A lot of them have kind of atrophied over the decades as government has grown. You mentioned mutual aid earlier. That was the way, uh, the primary way that Americans helped each other in the past. And we even see a kind of movement back towards mutual aid uh, in recent years, partly in response to the uh, regulation of healthcare. There's something called healthcare sharing ministries. This is basically the old mutual aid societies. People basically come together and agree uh, to pay each other's medical bills. And it's an alternative to insurance. So you can do that. I do think that most Americans would support some form of public uh, safety nets. Uh, but obviously, they should not be so big and generous that, you know, people just stop, uh, you know, being responsible for themselves. Yeah, I like the the fact that you use the word atrophy, because that is that I think that's a very appropriate term for what's happened as as government has has grown outside of its its initial boundaries. We've seen and I, I like to, to use the phrase wide elbows when it, when government enters into an area normally it wasn't. It'll come in with very wide elbows and it'll push out the institutions that were operating in that space and kind of crowd them out. So those institutions that were taking care of things no longer have to to that amount and they start atrophy. There is an atrophy that sets in. They, they can't function as well as they used to. And so if government is instantly removed from there, there, there would be a struggle to fill that space because those institutions, they don't have the muscle mass that they had before. But you're right. That's exactly right. It, it doesn't it doesn't have to be one hundred percent. And I, I like the mutual aid that the uh, that ministry that you were talking about. The, my wife and I had talked about doing that. I really like the way that that uh, the one we were looking at. The way it worked is we didn't send our our money each month to the organization. We were told where to send it. We sent it to like a, a specific hospital to in care of this person's bill. And exactly, it worked a lot. From what I've understood, the people I know who have used it say it works fantastically. That's exactly right. And our and our view is let's just uh, let people have that choice. Yeah, what's what's wrong with a little, with a little choice? So let's let's go back to uh, to the reforms. Now there are five reforms that that would bring about the improvements that we think Americans deserve. That first one is to expand access. Could you explain that to me? Sure. People need to be able to obtain health care without uh, obstacles. And the biggest obstacle people face right now is cost. And the reason health care costs so much is because of the tax code. And basically, it is driving up Basically, it's subsidizing certain kinds of health arrangements, but not others. And the result is people are losing touch with the cost of care, and and basically the price is going up. It's as if you went into the grocery store and there were no prices listed, and uh, you were able to just fill up your grocery cart. And uh, now, of course, sometimes 
uh, after a while that started saying, well, you can't go down this aisle. You don't have, uh, your, 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 your plan doesn't cover this aisle. And, you know, you get all these rules and regulations, which is exactly what we see in healthcare. But um, if, you, uh, if you level the playing field so that you as an individual get that same uh, tax treatment that, you know, your employer gets the big, and big companies get, then you could spend money out of pocket for health care and in, in, in not have that sort of uh, barrier. And uh, one way you would do this is through tax-free health savings accounts. Basically, that's a way for you to get that same tax break that employers get, but you're in control of the money. And you might use that uh, to help pay your premiums, or you might use that to buy health care out of pocket. Americans tend not to spend money out of pocket on health care anymore. In 1960, it was, you know, almost all of, of health care spending was people just paying directly out of pocket. They would ask the doctor, hey, how much is this going to cost? Nowadays, almost everything is sp- spent through insurance. And even if you did bother to ask how much it'll cost, the doctor won't know. And the person behind the counter in the doctor's office won't know. Why? Because it's a negotiation between an insurance company and in a in a in your medical organization or the doctor's um, group, and nobody knows the cost. And then you get a bill later, and it you know you kind of blows you away because it's so much, and maybe you actually owe uh, more than you expected, and it it just doesn't work. What about telehealth? How does that ex- how does that relate into expanding access? Telehealth is. Uh, and uh, you know it's the 21st century way to get a lot of health care you can talk to a doctor online you can uh, uh, dil- d- you can have your uh, remote monitoring of your vital signs you know your doctor can be seeing basically your vital signs and it's going through the internet it's being recorded by the doctor and uh, you know reviewed by him or her and you don't have to physically go into the doctor's office there are apps out there that, that just just stagger me. Um, one of the things that I, I am blessed to own is a is a watch that will actually record uh, e- ECGs. It will I can use it to right. to take a and it's certified by the FDA for what that's worth. But it will take a I, can, I if I feel something in my chest, which is as as if you were to look at my my healthcare jacket my my medical record you'd say okay i understand why you own that but you know <laughs> I, if i if i feel something unusual i can push a button on my phone and start recording an ecg which might be helpful if i suddenly f- collapse in in cardiac arrest or whatever but there are so many apps that you can attach to this this computer you carry around your phone that will allow you to to do things you couldn't do 5 10 years ago and we need we need to to capitalize on that and remove the barriers that are in the way that prevent it absolutely i know people who say that they're alive today because of apps and tools like that that you use your your phone to monitor your heart or um your blood sugar or what have you where you know technology has really opened up a lot of opportunity there are barriers that make it hard uh, to get access to those apps, and you know, let's remove them. Yeah, what's funny is I was when I was looking at this watch that I have now, and I hate to keep going back to this watch, but it, it's relevant to the story. When the watch first came out, 
it had this capability, but they didn't activate it for like another year or like maybe 18 months after the watch had been released because it was still going through FDA certification. They, they changed nothing about it, but it took 18 months for them to actually turn this capability on. And that's the kind of barrier that we're talking about, the, the slowness that you find in that bureaucracy. Absolutely. One thing we've seen over the past year is relevant to access is, is how many people have increased their need for a doctor or to go to the hospital. And these barriers that were in the way that we were told were there for safety are being done away with uh, temporarily right now. But we're seeing things like um, doctors and nurses going across state lines where that's being waived. Um, but we're also seeing the highlighting of certificate of need laws and how that limits access. Could you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the great lessons of the uh, COVID pandemic of 2020 uh, has been that all kinds of rules and regulations stand between doctors and nurses and the patients they're trying to care for. And in the pandemic, all kinds of rules have been waived in order to save lives. You mentioned a couple, um, you know, practicing medicine across state lines, using telehealth across state lines, um, allowing hospitals to expand the number of beds without asking the government's permission. That's that's the certificate of need um, program that a lot of states have, which is needless. You don't need to ask the government for permission to add hospital beds, or you shouldn't, but you do in 35 states. Um, letting nurses... Uh, you know, do everything they're trained for without having to have a, do a physician's supervision. Um, all of these kinds of uh, reforms were simply done in order to save lives. And you have to ask yourself, well, if those things stand in the way of life-saving in a pandemic, why do we need them in normal times? Yeah. And one of the, one of the shocking things for me, because I, I didn't realize this, and I, I'm, I'm reading through this, this article, um, the Federal Food and Drug Administration imposes a gag rule on drug manufacturers barring the sharing of scientific information with doctors about possible uses of drugs outside the current limits of the drug's labeling, even when such right. information is truthful, non-misleading, and potentially life-saving. Why? Why would they do that? Well, I think it's about control. And it, the FDA historically has been very afraid of anything that could basically recoil back on the FDA as, oh, you guys let something bad out there. Uh, unfortunately, the FDA doesn't seem to feel any urgency about making sure people have access to the things they need to save their lives. The incentives are, are bad for the FDA, and we actually need FDA reform. The gag rule that you talk about basically um, – yeah, it's telling uh, the, the, the makers of therapies, you may not share valid scientific information with physicians about potentially life-saving uses of your product because we at the FDA, we, we just don't want you to do that. That is such a top-down attitude that, that it's very much a one-size-fits-all. This is the only thing we see this being worth anybody to anybody in America uh, and the rest of this information is of no use to anyone. It sees it sees patients as 
a, you know, almost as a collective, like they're all the same rather than individualizing things. And that, that stifles innovation, that stifles creativity. It, it, and it, it hurts. Uh, it hurts Americans. That's, I don't know, shameful yeah. comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's too strong a word. Um, I think we need more common sense on these things and we need to reform FDA uh, so that they have a different incentive, so that they focus on what are we doing that's that's saving lives, rather than just trying to uh, make sure that you know a bad product doesn't get out there. Obviously, it's a balance, but um, the fact is, uh, the FDA focuses on two things: safety and efficacy. In other words, does the thing, you know, is it safe and does it work? And that's very nice, but doctors and patients are the ones who f- figure out whether it works. Uh, so why not just focus on safety? Let the FDA be a little bit more like uh, underwriter labs, underwriter laboratories. You know, basically we give the seal of approval. This is safe for humans, um, and now trust the doctors and the patients to find out for whom it works and and in what amounts and and for what uh, diseases and and conditions. Um, it's you know medicine so complicated that there's no way a government bureaucracy can ever fully know exactly how effective a drug is. And even with the massive information they require now, and it, it ends up driving up the costs of new therapies by billions of dollars and delaying them by many years, they still find that there are new things they discover once they actually allow it to be used in the marketplace, things that didn't get caught in the clinical trial process and that's always going to happen so why not streamline it and let you know trust doctors and patients to try therapies that they think might save life the second point for reform is to reduce costs and we've talked about that quite a bit i was curious uh, before we move on was there anything about reducing costs that you wanted to mention that we haven't talked about yet sure we we've covered a lot of it already the, the one thing i might add is that Employers ought to be allowed to offer more affordable options to their to their employees. For example, association health plans. Uh, this is an idea where basically small businesses can band together, get group discounts, and less expensive um, coverage for all of their employees. That's basically not allowed now, although the, the outgoing administration a few years ago did uh, issue a regulation basically allowing it and unfortunately that's been held up in court on the grounds or the assertion that they didn't have the authority to do that so our hope is that uh, in 2021 congress will make that sensible reform permanent uh, so that uh, you know employers can offer more affordable options the third point is end negative surprises i'd like to know what that exactly means what is a negative surprise? Well, a negative surprise can be one of at least two things. One would be, uh, you know, you go to the doctor's office and uh, and uh, you ask how much it's going to cost, and they say, we don't know. Um, another surprise is that you get a bill in the mail afterwards, and it's for an amount, perhaps a very large amount, that you never agreed to. Now, Congress, the, that latter problem is called surprise billing, and Congress uh, just very recently tried to solve it with more regulations and uh, mandates, 
uh, we'll have to watch the implementation of that reform. Uh, they promise that uh, you won't get those bills anymore. We'll see if that's true. My guess is the, the we will see costs go up uh, because we're still not trying to actually have price transparency. The point is, healthcare is the only industry in America where you really never know how much a thing costs before you actually buy it. It's not like the surgery center of Oklahoma for everything yet. Our goal is to get there, to make it so that they all have to tell you, I mean, through market forces, not mandates, they all tell you how much it's going to cost up front. What, what would you suggest we do to protect the vulnerable, protect the vulnerable which is the fourth point? Well, let's make sure that um, the people who have costly um, medical conditions can obtain uh, insurance options if they want them. Um, that means that um, for programs, you know, government programs like Medicare and Medicaid, for employer-based group health plans, then yes, you, you charge everyone the same price. You let uh, people uh, buy in regardless of their health condition. That's fine. That's great. But for portable private insurance that's you just buy and you own it just like your homeowners or automobile insurance, it's yours. And, um, you know, for that, you should, you should be able to get a lower rate because you have less risk. And, um, but there should be um, safety nets for the people that have the medical conditions. In other words, in a sense, subsidies that ensure that those people can buy in as well. We have to acknowledge that those are subsidies. It's a form of welfare, but it's a way to ensure that everybody does have access to what they need uh, for, for uh, you know, because otherwise some people might actually get shut out of care that they need, and we don't want that. Also, on top of all that, we should reform the big government health care programs. Uh, they are incredibly wasteful. There's a huge amount of waste and um, fraud and abuse in those programs. I'm thinking of Medicare and Medicaid. And they don't really provide the high-quality care that Americans need and deserve. So there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, and, and by doing those things, we can actually strengthen the safety net and make things better for people. The final point is to help people, not insurance companies. What does that mean? Yeah, that means if we're helping people, uh, or excuse me, if we're uh, you know trying to make sure that uh, there are subsidies, there's money from the taxpayers for health care, let's give that money to individuals. Let's not give it to insurance companies. The insurance companies are incredibly profitable. They get billions upon billions of dollars from the taxpayers every year, and it always seems to be going up. And uh, in fact, you know, in health insurance stocks is one of the best investments because they're always going up. Um, there's a lot of waste there, and the money should go to you, the patient, because this whole system is about the patient, not about the insurance company. So everything that we've been talking about is geared towards that. You know, the HSAs, the health savings accounts we talked about, all of the reforms to increase access to care and to bring down costs. That's all about the patient, not about the insurer. When you look at the the overall goals of, of the a personal option, could you kind of explain to me very quickly 
how that goes about breaking barriers and creating a society of mutual benefit? Sure. We start with the patient, and we recognize that um, people have rights and dignity, and therefore they should be free to choose and to make their own determinations about their own health care, and they should be free to engage in mutually beneficial transactions with others, including caregivers. And um, when you do that, you end up having basically better outcomes for everybody. Everybody's happier, costs are lower, quality is higher, there's more to go around for everyone. And, but you can't get there through a centralized top-down approach. You have to respect and trust individuals to make good decisions for themselves. When we look at this, we, we move past the vision. We start talking about the four mutually reinforcing principles that, that kind of guide what we do. The first one being equal rights. How is the current situation in healthcare violating people's equal rights? Well, obviously... Is that, is that too big a question? I mean, are there too many examples? No. No, I mean, it, it goes back to what I mentioned about the tax code. You know, it basic, it, the tax code discriminates, and that drives people into options they don't necessarily want. It makes people feel like they're tied to their, uh, their job. They're a little worried about leaving the job because they'll lose what they consider to be good health benefits, and they don't really think they can afford the, the benefits in the highly regulated uh, health care exchanges. Um, that discrimination is unfair. It doesn't treat people equally. It doesn't put the money just in the hands of the individual. I think another great example of, of how it violates equal rights is the way that what you mentioned earlier, treatments and, and, uh, and medicines that are working in other countries, we don't have access to those. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. And, um, yeah, so the, the, as clearly from this discussion, it's obvious. We, we got lots of instances of unfairness, and, um, but by removing barriers, we can get to a much fairer system. I think we move on to mutual aid. We can, we can look at the fact, or not mutual aid, that's on the mind, of course, but mutual benefit. We've talked a lot about the fact that people are being forced to buy plans that they don't, they, they just don't need. There, there are things in there that, that don't benefit them, but coercion is being used to force them to buy things that they simply don't need. And that, that's not mutually beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah, we're a long way off from, from where we should be. Openness, we go, we go to openness next. And I think one of the big examples with openness is the transparency, is the truth in, in advertising, is the, the end negative surprises. Is there anything else about openness in, in uh, the healthcare and the personal option we should mention? Well, you know, so much of healthcare is opaque. You can't see the prices. You, do, you don't know the rules. Americans don't realize that the rules exist. I think it was a lot of a surprise to a lot of people that uh, you know you can't actually uh, talk to your doctor uh, across state lines through telehealth um, there's a there is a tremendous lack of openness and it's precisely because the patient who is also the consumer is not really in charge of the system by empowering the patient we will bring about that openness that we want 
there are very few priority initiatives that have a bigger impact on self-actualization than proper health care. I'm, I'm struggling to think of one now that might have a bigger impact. Uh, I'm sure there, each person in the specific priority initiatives could make a case that theirs does. But I can't imagine a, a, a poorly functioning health care system leading to uh, greater opportunities for self-actualization. How does the personal option help with that? Well, as, as you said, it, you, you can't really self-actualize if you can't make your own medical decisions and if uh, your health is less than it should be. Um, you know, there's very few things in life that are more important to people than their health. And uh, it's just foundational to our happiness and to our ability to enjoy life and uh, to be who we really fully want to be. And the beauty of living in this time is technology and knowledge are such that we are conquering disease and we are, you know, living longer and better. And there's just so much good news. And it's, it's sad that it can't be even better for more people. And um, this is why there's just such a, you know, there's just a passion and urgency about this issue. And I'm, why I'm so happy to be working with this group to help, you know, kind of spread the word uh, that, you know, we can really make the world better here. And it's not that hard. These reforms are pretty sensible. There's no reason why they can't be done with bipartisan support in our federal and state legislatures. Um, the world can be better and, and we can all help make that happen. Thanks again to Dean Clancy. And if you want to know more about the personal option, check out our show notes. I'll put all kinds of links in there to articles that you can share and learn from. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend about it. And if you have time, leave a positive review on whatever service you're listening to us on right now. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this has been Insight to Action.